In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Sorry we didn't have anyone to sing the songs at the beginning today. Um, God willing, today we're going to continue studying uh, in the book uh, Diabolic Wars by His Holiness Pope Shenouda III. Um, we have spoken now, I believe this is our fourth uh, lecture in the series, we've spoken about various ways that the uh, devil tempts um, God's children. Um, last time we spoke about um, shaking principles and values, um, which is kind of making us to doubt the things that we believe. Uh, and then the second was uh, following the general trend, meaning the pressure to do according to what the rest of society is doing, the rest of the people are doing. Um, and those were like the two main ones that we focused on um, last time. Today we're going to uh, continue uh, with the, the points that His Holiness makes in his book uh, of the methods that the devil tempts um, God's people. The next one is um, what His Holiness refers to as just temptations. Um, uh, he, he references uh, the verse in 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, where he speaks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. These three kind of points really cover so many of the temptations that we experience in the world. Um, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. The lust of the flesh, of course, could be like the, the desire for things, like the desire for uh, anything that our flesh desires. could be sexual desire. Um, it could be other types of desires. The lust of the eyes is like the lust for possessions and wealth and to obtain. Um, and then finally, the pride of life is the idea of my feeling of being independent, not wanting to submit to a God, but wanting to believe that I am essentially God and my own. And we see this very much nowadays in our society. Um, more and more, uh, the idea that we can define the truth to be however we want it to be. So um, I think it's easy for us to understand uh, these types of temptations that we all experience. The, 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 the human desires that we have that have been twisted by the devil uh, to kind of um, make us to go after something that leads us away from God. And, and, you know, one of the interesting things about temptations is that the, we we're studying in the book club the, the book uh, Screwtape Letters, and in there it speaks about how um, the devil, all he does is he uses the existing natural and good desires that God has put in us, but he twists them to be in a, in a bad way to cause harm and damage. For instance, like the sexual desire. The sexual desire is a good. It is something that God has put in human beings. But the devil takes that sexual desire and he twists it to be something uh, destructive, to be something that is against him, to be something that harms the children of God, right? The desire to eat for food, for instance, it's something good. But the devil takes that desire and he turns it into gluttony, right? Um, anger. Anger is something good right? God placed in us the ability to feel anger against injustice, to feel anger against sin, to feel anger against evil, right? If we didn't have anger, right, then we would be indifferent to injustice. We would be indifferent to um, the suffering of people. We would be indifferent to so many things that God wants us to take action on. We would be indifferent, right? So anger is not evil. Anger is good. But the devil takes this idea of anger and he t twists it to be where I become angry for selfish reasons. I become angry because people have insulted me. I become angry because people don't do what I wish, wish for them to do. And the way that I react in my anger is also destructive. Instead of it being something positive that I can take positive action in some area because of my anger, instead I take this destructive action that maybe destroys relationships and whatnot. So all of these temptations that the devil tempts us with 
and this is what makes them difficult, is in and of themselves, there might be some good in them. But the way it is applied, the timing it is applied, the, 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 the kind of the method by which the temptation comes to us, this is what makes it sinful, right? This is what makes it sinful. So this is number 16, the, the ways that the devil tempts us. Um, number 17, uh, his holiness calls it drugging, okay? What is drugging? It means that the devil is making us to forget, kind of like puts us in this intoxicated state, to make us to forget everything except the object of sin that we desire in the moment of temptation. Meaning when the human being is tempted and is convinced of this temptation, they are willing to do anything to obtain the object of their desire, even regardless of any possible negative consequences that might come upon the person, right? It's kind of like a moment of, of temporary insanity, right? When people are kind of in that moment, like I was reading this news article about like a, a woman who killed her boyfriend because she was jealous of him, okay? So, so in that moment of jealousy, right, she, she felt like there was no consequence of my actions and I feel so strongly about this that I want to end his life, thinking that there is nothing that's going to come of it, right? That this is the, what's going to bring me satisfaction is to see this person is, dies, right? That moment of temptation makes us to lose our mind that nothing else is, is relevant or matters or is important except for that thing that I want and that I desire. So in that moment, um, we forget that we are the children of God. We forget the commandments of God. We forget the consequences of sin. We forget that maybe we've committed the sin before and all of the negative consequences that came before are going to come again. Maybe we, we hear like this voice telling us, well, if we sin this time, actually there will be no consequence. Nothing bad was going to happen. Even though we've been down the road and we know what's going to happen, we know the, the, the consequence of sin, and yet in that moment it's like we forget. We forget everything about our desire for our relationship with God. We forget that we want to be holy. We forget like all of the sermons we've ever listened to. We, for we forget everything, right? In the moment of sin, it is like we are in this uh, state of being um, drugged. And then after the sin has happened, it's kind of like you come back to yourself again. And then you think, how is it that I could have done this? Or there is a feeling of shame. There is the sudden realization of all of the things that um, were invisible to us, that we were blinded to in the moment of temptation, right? This is when this moment of drugging kind of like goes away. It's like, how is it that I was able to do what it is that I did? Even though I knew that it was wrong, right? And yet in that moment, I was so convinced and that is all that I cared about and desired in that time. This is um, number 17. Number 18 is turning religion into philosophy. Okay, turning religion into philosophy. Um, the Lord Jesus Christ, when he spoke to the people, he said in John 6, verse 63, he said, the words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. This means that the words of the Lord Jesus Christ are the means of life. He is the way of life. He is in his person and in, in, in relationship with him, we have life. Okay? So Christianity is fundamentally a practice, right? It involves knowledge and understanding because we have to understand what is this that we believe and what is this practice that we are practicing. But fundamentally, it is based on an action that I take. It is a way of life. It is a, a, a way of making decisions. It's, it's a, a way of spending my time. It's a, uh, you know, it is not just an academic pursuit, right? It is not just about knowledge. It's not just a way of thinking. 
It's not just uh, a way of reasoning. It's not just um, kind of like historical things that I read about and I understand. And so one of the ways the devil tempts us is he tempts us to believe that knowledge and understanding is equivalent to faith. That having knowledge and understanding and seeking knowledge and understanding is the same thing as being Christian. Okay? When these are not the same. You know, you have people who are uh, atheists that have PhDs in Christianity um, and teach Christianity in university, right? Even though they're atheists, they can teach Christianity. They can teach everything about the Bible. They can memorize the Bible. They can teach the historical realities of Christianity and the way the church was established and how the church progressed and so on and so on. And yet there was no real faith in that person, you know? It reminds me of there is um, a, a, a conversation that happened in, um, in the book of Acts uh, between Governor Festus. Governor Festus um, was, they were, he was having a conversation about what is it that this is the dispute between St. Paul and the Jews, right? Why is it that the Jews are trying to kill St. Paul, okay? So fundamentally, we know St. Paul was a Pharisee and a Jewish person. He believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, and he gave his life. Now he is ministering to Christ. He is preaching. He's establishing churches, and the Jews are against him because obviously this is not what they believe, Right? So in this conversation with Governor Festus, it was said what? Trying to, from the outside, someone trying to describe why is it that the Jews have something against St. Paul? The, the description was like, um, they have a dispute of a man named Jesus whom, um, whom died and St. Paul says that he's alive, right? Like, like, it's a very superficial description of what happened in the Gospels, right? that we believe that this man, Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, he was crucified and resurrected from the dead. And there is great consequence and, 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 and great relevance and significance to this resurrection. For someone who is a Christian, we look at this as like the pinnacle and the core of our faith. And our faith is revolves around this notion. But for the, the point of view in this conversation with Governor Festus, the way it was described is, yeah, there was a person who some people say died and some people say is alive. Right? It, it completely ignores the reality of the significance of what exit that is happening. And this is the same thing when people who are not faithful, in the sense that they are not believers, speak about Christianity. They speak about Christianity from the outside. They, they describe, this is what the Christians believe, and this is the way that they practice. Without understanding the significance of those practices, without having lived those practices, without having experienced those things. Right. So the same is true for those who are Christian, even as Christians, we can approach Christianity in this way. We can approach Christianity as, yes, I read the Bible and I understand certain verses that are in the Bible of what it says and I believe in God and Trinity and I say the creed and all those things. But in my life, in my practice, I don't actually practice. I don't actually live my life according to this faith. It is simply just like an academic understanding or philosophy about life that is not translating into holiness, that's not translating into obedience, that's not translating into real faith. It doesn't translate into any of those things. When St. Paul, when um, the Lord Jesus Christ was rebuking the Jews, he says to them in John chapter 5, he says, you search the scriptures for in them you believe that you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me, but you are not willing to come to me that you may have life. Meaning you are contented just reading the scriptures, just reading, reading, reading the scriptures. But the thing that you are lacking is that you are not taking the next step, which is you are not willing to come to me so that you may have the life that is being described in the scriptures. Right. 
So this is the difference between a person who is a Christian just in the mind versus a Christian with their whole person, right? Like when the Lord says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength, right? The entire being is to be Christian, right? Christianity is not a practice that I practice on Sunday because I come to church in the morning, right? That is not a Christianity. In Christianity, our whole life revolves around God, and every decision revolves around God, and everything that I do, it should be to please God, and every, every, the way I make decisions, the way that I spend my time, because for me, God is the reality. He is reality. What we are experiencing, everything else, this is not really the reality. This is just a temporary place that we are in. Who is it that is going to remain after this place goes away? It is God, and hopefully us with him, right? So turning Christianity into a philosophy makes people believe that they are being faithful, makes people believe because they are still doing the actions of Christians in the sense that they are coming to the church. They are maybe reading the Bible, maybe doing the things that if we saw anyone doing, we would conclude about them that they are Christian people, right? But that does not translate into a real life of faith. It doesn't translate into a real relationship with God. It translates into knowledge, right? I can give a topic about these things that I've read about, but I'm not living it. It is not a part of me. It is not something that I am willing to sacrifice for. This is how we determine really what is important to us. You know, because if someone comes to me and he says, what is it that you love most in the world? Well, I know the answer. The answer should be yes, I love God most in the world. But, but how do we know if that's the truth? It is based on what we are willing to sacrifice. It's based on how we spend our time, right? Because giving of our time is a sacrifice. What am I willing to sacrifice for this faith? You look at the people who are the martyrs, right? Those martyrs, they gave their life for the faith. Their, their, this faith to them was more important than their life. They only had one life. This was their life that they had received. They, th their faith was more important to them than their life. That demonstrated that to them, their Christianity was not simply a philosophy. It was not simply about knowledge. It was something they were willing to give themselves for. We see the same with the apostles. The apostles, they preached the resurrection, but they did not preach it the way that we spoke about here with the conversation with Governor Festus. It wasn't, it wasn't speaking about it in this bland, superficial way. It was speaking about it as, no, I believe in the resurrection, and I will give my life for the truth of the resurrection, right? And this is what we are being called for, this type of faith, not the academic faith. Sadly, in our era now, we have so much knowledge available to us, you know, like anyone who wants to learn anything and answer any question can do so instantly. Just look it up on your phone. The answer to any question is there. And so if you ask the question as Christians, how much do we know about the Orthodox faith as compared to maybe generations ago? Maybe the answer is we know a lot, you know. Maybe the answer is we know a lot of things. We know a lot of things. We have access to all of the writings of the church fathers. We have access to all these different versions of the Bible and all these different commentaries. We, have, we can search the Bible. Like we don't have to memorize where things are. We can just search for a word and it pops up in the Bible and we can see where it is. The knowledge that we have maybe of the Bible, maybe of the different church writings, maybe we have more access to this than ever in the history of the world. Okay? But does that mean that we have more faith than there has ever been in the church like since the beginning? I would say no, we don't. Right? So that knowledge doesn't translate automatically to action and to practice. And so this is what we are trying to do.
right? What we are trying to do is not just to increase in knowledge. We are trying to increase our practice. We are trying to live in the knowledge that we have. You know, like if, if, if we never learned a single other thing about Christianity and we only knew what we already know, but we lived it completely and fully, we would be saints, right? We would be saints with just the little that we have, you know? Maybe without all of the deeper knowledge that we are trying to attain, you know? That doesn't mean that the seeking of knowledge is wrong. You know, actually in, in the book of Hosea, um, God says, my people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge. Because they have no knowledge, they don't understand, right? I'm not saying that we shouldn't seek knowledge, but we should only seek knowledge for the sake of strengthening our relationship to Christ, not to seek knowledge because we want to teach, not to seek knowledge because we want to know, because knowledge is power, right? Because in the church, you, ha you have knowledge just like in anywhere else. You become a prominent person. The more knowledge you have, just like in, in your career, the more knowledge you have, the more skilled you are in your trade, um, you, you advance, you get promoted, right? That should not be the reason why we seek knowledge, right? We shouldn't seek knowledge simply because I want to be like other people who have knowledge, right? There are many wrong reasons to seek knowledge and to see Christianity in this way. But what we are called for is to have a relationship with Christ. And you can have a person with very, very minimal knowledge, very minimal knowledge, and they have greater faith than all of us, right? And that should be our, our goal. Our goal is to have the simplicity of faith, not necessarily to have the sophistication of the knowledge. If we can have the knowledge and the faith, that's the perfect combination, right? That I am, I, I, I you know, when we look at a lot of these like um, theologian saints in the church, someone like St. Cyril, for instance. St. Cyril, he had this like perfect theological understanding and was able to refute heresies and, and wrote all of these things, but he was also a saint and a holy man, right? This is the, the like kind of like what we would aspire to be, right? But not all of us have the ability to learn uh, as much as he did or to have the theological depth of understanding as he did. And that's fine. But what we are called for is to live according to what we have, to live according to what we know. And again, if we lived really according to what we know, we might be able to be saints even now without even learning a single other thing. So we should be careful. Even Christ, when he was speaking about um, to, the, uh, to the disciples, and he said to them, do not let many of you desire the rank of a teacher, right? Because those who are teachers are going to be judged more harshly, right? Because if you know more, then you will be judged according to what you know, right? We shouldn't think that the knowledge is going to bring salvation, you know? Salvation is not according to knowledge. Salvation is, is, is according to faith. Right, that we are we are practicing, we are practicing and living what it is that we know. So this is a temptation, where the where the devil makes us to feel contented and safe and and happy that we are filled with the knowledge of of Christianity. But the question is, are we really living it? Are we really living it in our lives? Are we struggling? Are we confessing? Are we are we are we trying to forgive our enemies? Are we trying to do these things, or are we kind of just we have knowledge and we know you know we know a lot of information. Another way that the devil tempts us is by giving us an interval without sin. Meaning, there can be times when the devil does not fight us. You know, maybe we struggle with sin for a long time in a certain area, and then suddenly we find that... Oh, sorry, go ahead. Okay, let me just finish this point, and then 
Um, we could be struggling in a sin for a long time and, and really, really struggling with it, like feeling overwhelmed with temptation for it. And maybe we find that it is something that's really where we're failing, we're failing, we're failing. Um, and then suddenly we don't feel tempted anymore. We don't really feel like we want it anymore. It's something that kind of goes away, okay? And in those moments, maybe our first instinct is to believe, okay, I overcame this. You know, like I overcame it or I conquered it. The devil's not fighting me anymore. Like it's, it's done. It's in the past. I don't need to worry about it anymore, okay? And so I begin to let my guard down, right, as compared to before. Like maybe before I was trying to make an effort. I was trying to be careful more, right? And now I don't feel the need to because I'm, 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 not, I'm, I'm not struggling with it. But what's actually happening is not that the devil, it's not that we've overcome the sin, it's that the devil has stopped ten tempting me with it for a time in preparation for a greater fall, right? Like we said before, the devil is a planner. He plans and he knows. He knows what he's planning to do, and even if it takes decades to accomplish it, He's going to continue on his route, on his plan, doing this until the fall comes. And he doesn't, he's not, he's not interested in the fall immediately. You know, we are always about, I want it now. He's not like that. He says, you know, I can wait 50 years, right? If it takes 50 years to set you up for this fall, I can wait 50 years, okay? So even this, these periods of time where we live without this kind of struggle, we have to still be very careful. That's why, like in the church, we always talk so much about having discipline. A discipline is a routine, uh, a way of life that I live according to it, regardless of what's happening. Like, regardless of what's happening. I could be very tired. I could be not tired. I could be very sad. I could be not sad. I could be very busy. I could be not busy. Whatever it is, whatever the situation I happen to be in, my discipline, right, or my canon, is that I am going to live a certain way. I'm going to do certain practices. I'm going to be disciplined in my life because I cannot trust myself. You know, the scripture says the heart is deceitful above all things who can know it. I can't trust myself. I can't trust my emotions. I can't trust what's happening because I can be fooled. You know, we spoke a couple times ago about the story of St. Jacob the Struggler who was um, deceived into falling into fornication and murder with a woman who lived near him, right, because of the plot of the enemy, because of what he did, okay? And he was very conniving and deceptive, right, in what he did. And so, so this is an example. St. Jacob the struggler, because he fell into this fornication with this woman, because he allowed himself to be close to her, right? And, and at the time, he could very easily think about himself, like, I am a, I'm a monk, I'm an ascetic, this is not going to be something that is, um, you know, a problem for me. And so I let my guard down, and it's for her good because she's demon-possessed, and, and, and she gets comforted when I pray for her, and, and I'm a holy person, and God has given me this gift of, like, uh, exercising demons, so I'll allow myself to get close to her in order for her benefit as a service to her, right? But, of course, at the end, that ended up leading him into falling into sin with her, right? So, so the discipline is I will live a certain way regardless of anything. For instance, that's why, like, anyone who wants to visit the monastery, you know, there's very strict rules in the monastery you know, with the monks. It has nothing to do with if the monks are holy people or if the monks are, you know, if they have a history of problems or not. Or, you know, it has nothing to do with that. It is, there are certain things that we live according to these rules because it is safe, right? Because it is safe. And because it, because, because at any time we can fall. And this, 
interval without sin is something where it will kind of cause us to let our guard down, to no longer think that it's necessary to live according to a certain discipline because we don't need it. We think to ourselves, we don't need it. But it's in that moment that the greater temptation will suddenly come upon us and we will find ourselves trapped in something um, that we can't escape. Yeah, so number one, the drugging, you're absolutely right. That's what fasting is for. We, we, we fast so that in those moments of strong temptation, we've learned how to control our desires and our urges um, with something like food, which is not sinful, but then we can apply that same principle to other things that we desire that, that might be sinful. So the fasting, the, the advantage of the fasting and the purpose of the fasting is very much along those lines for that reason, okay? Um, the, the, you know... The scripture says that God will not allow us to be tempted more than we are able, which means that in every situation of temptation, there is a way for us to escape, right? It says he will make a way of escape. There is a way for us to, um, to, to not fall. It is not inevitable that we must fall, right? But it is an attack. It is a trial. It is, it is something that is desirable in the moment that then we have to choose. I have the ability to choose. I have the free will to choose. But... Sometimes my free will and my, 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 my strength of will has been so eroded that when the temptation comes, I find myself unable to resist. And that's when we have to work on, well, what are the reasons why my strength of will has been eroded, right? And what can I do to improve? So, for instance, the fasting is a way that I can strengthen my will. Um, if I... For instance, I'm not confessing my sins. If I'm not living a life of repentance, that's also going to erode my will because I'm just kind of like open the door and anything that comes in, I'm accepting it, right? Um, the idea of, 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 of God making a way of escape. I don't know, did I talk to you about the example of the fire escape like in a building? Um, like, like how like when, when someone builds a building, like let's say a building like in New York, for instance, you see like an apartment building and they have like those metal stairs on the outside which is the fire escape, right? So when somebody built the building before the fire happened, they already put the fire escape there with the understanding that when the fire comes, then you can escape, right? 
So you, you had a forethought about this and designed something so that when the moment came, you had a means of escape, right? So the same is true w with temptation. If we have made no preparation for temptation, if we have no preparation of like strengthening our will or our spiritual life in any way, then when the moment of temptation comes, it's kind of like a fire in a building without a fire escape. You're, you're trapped. There's no escape, right? But the escape is something that you have pre-built, right? According to your lifestyle, according to the way that you live. So for instance, I'm not going to do things that I know are going to be a very strong source of temptation you know, or go to certain places that I know are going to be a strong source of temptation and say, well, God said I would escape temptation. No, I'm setting myself up for failure, okay? If I don't have any kind of relationship with Christ in prayer or anything like that, and then I experience temptation, again, I have not set myself up to escape. There is no fire escape. So the fire escape or the escape from sin is not necessarily something that happens in the moment, right? It's, it's a lifestyle that provides the escape, right? And so to help me not to get to the point of being drugged, to help me not get to the point where I've lost my mind completely, is to always be focusing on God all the time, to always be praying all the time, to always be repenting all the time, to, 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 to be careful, to not trust myself all the time, you know? Like, for instance, many people who are, like, getting to know each other, like, for marriage, for instance, they allow themselves to get very close to one another, which is not wise, because as much as they might believe that they have self-control and they're able to control their urges and impulses, we know human nature, right? So you're setting yourself up for failure by allowing yourself to be in a place to do a certain thing that is definitely going to result in sin, right? So you can't say, well, you know, well, well, God didn't give me a means of escape. No, you walked into the fire. Like the fire was there. You ran to it, right? So this idea of... Again, kind of like so many things in the spiritual life, it's a cooperation between us and God. We do our part in strengthening our relationship with God, and God does his part to grant us the grace to allow us to escape from, from these temptations. Um, and so the drugging is kind of a state where we have been completely consumed with, with the desire for sin that nothing else matters at that point. And it's very hard to get out of that once we get into that. But we don't have to get into it. We don't have to get to that point. And again, it goes to not something that I do in the moment to like cancel out the drugging effect, but something that I, a way of life that I live that prevents me from ever getting to that. Okay. Well, I think we're out of time for today. Does anyone else have any final comments or questions? Next time we'll start with this one, apparent bodily virtues. Okay, let's pray. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. We thank you, O Lord, for this day. We ask for your blessing. We ask for your protection. We ask, O God, for your forgiveness for our sins. And we ask you, O Lord, to keep us safe from all the temptations of the enemy. Help us, O God, to remain faithful to you and to seek a relationship with you and to grow, O Lord, in our spiritual life with you. Help us not to be, O Lord, led astray by all of the different bodily desires, by all of the wrong understandings, by all the temptations of mind and heart and body that the, that the devil sends against us. We thank you, O Lord, for your mercy, and we thank you, O God, because you reveal his, his intrigues against us. You reveal, O Lord, to us the way he fights us so that we can be prepared. 
We ask, O oh God, that you grant us strength and you grant us, O oh Lord, to live in a, ho a holy life in the midst of this wicked and perverse generation. Through the prayers of St. Mary, Archangel Michael, St. Paul, St. Mark, and all your saints here, as we pray thankfully, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of the only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion, the gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you all. Amen.